If there was ever an event in American history where the guilt of the offending party was certain, it just might have transpired in the summer of 1917. Anybody remember the summer of 1917? No, no, I didn't think anybody here would. And that being in Bisbee, Arizona. In June of that year, some 3,000 miners uh, organized a walkout as part of a labor union effort. The miners wanted safer working conditions, and they wanted to be paid in U.S. currency instead of being paid in uh, essentially coupons, company coupons that were redeemable at a company store where you might imagine the prices were inflated quite a bit. The protest was peaceful, but it didn't sit well with management. Uh, they didn't quite care for this protest. In July, the president and other corporate executives of the Phelps Dodge Mining Company met with the local county sheriff where they conspired to do the following, to seize by force of arms all the striking workers, forcibly deport them several hundred miles away, and abandon them in another desert town without food, clothing, or money. Phelps Dodge officials also coordinated their efforts with the El Paso and Southwestern Railroad. That sounds like a crazy story and a crazy idea, but over the next week, back in 1917, it was enacted. 2,200 men from a neighboring town were recruited and deputized to serve as armed muscle for the seizure and deportation of the miners. They were dubbed the Loyalty League. Who doesn't want to be part of the Loyalty League, right? From a list provided by Phelps Dodge and other employers, deputies arrested union miners and sympathizers. Once in custody, they were taken to a nearby baseball stadium to be tried. Now imagine here a kangaroo court. That's where they were being tried at. A few hundred of the detained who promised to return to work and were vouched for by, again, the Loyalty League uh, members, they were released. The remaining group, more than 1,200 people, were forced at gunpoint to board 23 cattle cars and were deported out of the state and into neighboring New Mexico. The trip was 16 hours across the desert. No food or water. Now remember, this is summer. And the temperature that day was well over 100 degrees. They arrived at their destination at 3 a.m. in the morning and were told not to return to Bisbee, Arizona, or else. The local Bisbee Daily Review labeled the strikers as agitators, idlers, wreckers, traitors, spies, and anarchists. It was a peaceful walkout. <laughs> A presidential commission that would later investigate these events noted in their final report what you have already surmised, that the actions taken were, quote, wholly illegal and without authority in law, either state or federal. But even so, no individual, no company, no agency was ever convicted in connection with these events. Neither the county nor the state ever prosecuted uh, the case and the Justice Department of the United States attempted to bring charges which ultimately proved unsuccessful, as there were no federal kidnapping statutes at the time. United States versus Wheeler, 1920. Imagine the position these miners found themselves in. Just imagine that for a moment. Particularly as they faced the challenge of either going back to the copper mine, which they deemed to be unsafe, on one side, or the very real possibility of financial ruin 
and forcible relocation on the other. That's what they were presented with as they stood in that baseball stadium. And a phrase that we know today comes from that time in American history and has joined the English language. Perhaps you've heard it before, caught between a rock and a hard place. The rock being the mine, the hard place being personal ruin. This morning, you may not be a striking miner. And the stories, of course, that we hear in Scripture this morning aren't about people walking out of a mine and facing illegal, we can call it that today, certainly unethical and immoral behavior by those in power. But it certainly shows people that are caught in a difficult spot. People that might find themselves in a rock and a hard place. Life can certainly deal us such a hand, and when it does, where do we go? Where do we turn? Who's on our side at that precise moment? Consider the difficulty that emerges from the three accounts in our story this morning. Number one is this, caught between the king's fury and the wilderness. So at God's direction in verse 3 of our text this morning, Elijah's outside the land of Israel and hiding in the Kareth ravine. He's hiding because there's a new king. If you go back one chapter earlier, you'll see this king introduced in 1 Kings chapter 16. And the new king is described there as having done, quote, more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. That's a pretty low order. Not a tall order. That's a low order. <laughs> that's someone who's not looking so good. Even worse, this king, according to the text, doesn't care. He doesn't care. So what? He thinks all those rules, those laws, that instruction from God, it's all just trivial stuff. And if that wasn't enough, he serves and worships the foreign deities of Baal and Asherah. You can see that he not only worships them, he's involved in the construction of the very places of worship. The effect of this is that Ahab is described at the end of chapter 16 as having done, quote, more to arouse the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than did all the kings of Israel before him. Identifying as a prophet of the Lord, like Elijah, identifying as a prophet of, of the one whose anger has been aroused against Ahab, it's going to put you in a difficult place. You're going to have some serious run-ins with the new administration. And though that alone would give reason to go into hiding, how much more when you announce to this new king, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. That's verse 1 of our text. That kind of announcement strikes a number of challenging notes to any administration. Divine judgment, of course, is one. Economic hardship, human suffering, not the least being that the king is not the sovereign. You're not in charge, buddy. I'm in charge. And actually not me. The Lord who I serve is in charge. You're not going to like to hear that if you're the king who's asserting yourself in a certain way. And what happens here is it puts Elijah in a difficult spot. It puts him in a difficult spot. But the second place that we see caught between anticipated starvation and accelerated starvation might be more difficult. The second account here isn't lost. The difficulty here is not lost on the widow. She knows that she's in a difficult place here in the story. And she tells the prophet as much in verse 12. As surely as the Lord your God lives, I don't have any bread. Only a handful of flour in a jar and a little olive oil in a jug. I'm gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. That's a hard place. 
That's the most difficult place you could be. There's no hope in that sentence. There's no sense of future security. It's over. Game over at that point, and she knows it. Let that last line sink in a bit. That's true, true hardship. That's feeling true, true difficulty. This widow whose lot in life, and at that time in history, would be one of being not only poor, but extremely vulnerable. And she's looking at her family's last meal, and she's resigning herself to the starvation that is certain to come. Think of the musical here, Annie. Remember Annie? Little orphan Annie? Maybe you know her from the comic strips. Always wonder why she didn't have pupils, right? It's always just white eyes. How about that? I always kind of wondered, like, how would she know the sun was going to come out tomorrow if you don't have pupils? But you remember that song, right? The sun will come out tomorrow. Bet your bottom dollar that tomorrow there will be sun, right? It's going to come. Unfortunately for this widow, there is no bottom dollar. She has no more money. The bottom dollar has been spent. She's out looking for sticks so she can finish the meal, the preparations there. What is left in her is deep sadness and resignation that come when you find yourself stuck. No options for relief. Yet the prophet asked for a meal. He asked for a meal. Would you bring me the things that you have? Would you give me those last things that you have? Well, then there's certainly a third caught here. Caught between loss and despair. Just when things seem to be looking up in verse 16. Just when that happens, her son becomes ill and dies. And that's the third story in our series. And the blow is so severe that the widow can only conclude that she is the target of divine judgment for past sin. Surely this prophet has come for the purpose of delivering this judgment. And in the cruelest of ways, front-loading the visit. The prophet comes and front-loads the visit with hopeful relief before dropping the hammer. Drops it right on her. Of course, the widow isn't the first one here to conclude such in the face of misery. If not with our own words and thoughts, we have certainly heard other ancients name, name this particular uh, area. Ancients who have surmised the same. In fact, Naomi, who we looked at when we studied the book of Ruth, did she not make the same claim? Here's Ruth's mother-in-law, herself a widow, who draws that similar conclusion when hardship visits home. It's hard not to imagine that something or someone is out to get us. You might insert here the life that's lived with a Charlie Brown good grief. Once more I've failed. Once more everything is turned against me. The cosmic tables are against me. But borrowing a line from the late Paul Harvey. We borrow a line from him. Now for the rest of the story. That's one story. That's certainly one part of the story. But what about the rest of the story here? Certainly each of the accounts peek at the trouble experienced by prophet and widow and son. But at the same time, the story would be incomplete without also recounting God's generous provisions along the way. With this being a meal-themed series that we're in here, you won't be surprised to learn that in two of the cases... Those solutions, those provisions come in the form of food. Yes, Elijah needs to get out of town and quick, right? We see that. But it is God who directs the prophet to the place of refuge. That's certainly the case in verse 3. And the location that he is sent to 
affords him water to drink and food that is delivered in an amazing way by ravens. Finally, the ravens do something good besides tear up my lawn. But not just any food. It says in verse 6, the ravens brought Elijah bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening. Meat, of course, is something substantial. That's more than just eating bread, but having meat. That's substantial, and it speaks to God's gracious care of the prophet with generous and abundant provisions delivered by birds. That's how God does it. That's how God rolls. Even when the recipient's immediate vision is despair and loss, and he's on the run, Remember those early generations, those folks who were in the wilderness who complained, and God responded with far different words than their complaints in Exodus chapter 16. God said at that time, I have heard the complaining of the Israelites. Say to them, at twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall have your fill of bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. And I imagine that Elijah, when those birds were dropping off that bread and that meat, was once more reminded like those early Israelites in the wilderness that God, the Lord, was indeed refuge, strength, but even more, that the Lord was his God. And the widow's resignation, of course, to certain starvation is met with familiar language. We see that in verse 13. Don't be afraid. That's what Elijah says to her. How often do the scriptures start out with a visit from the divine with don't be afraid? Fear not, giving us words of strength. But then we see in verse 14, the promise of provision shows up. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of meal will not be empty and the jug of oil will not fail until the day that the Lord sends rain on the earth. During this entire famine, you will be sustained. You'll be provided for. You'll be given the provisions that you need. And note the source of these gracious words. They're not Elijah's words alone says the Lord God of Israel. And also note that what is offered is not only gracious, but also generous and abundant. Like I said before, that's how God rolls. God provides generously, and God provides abundantly. And seemingly more myth than actual account, a story is told, and actually I say it's seemingly more myth. This is probably totally myth, all right? The following story you're about to hear is probably not true. But it makes a great point. The story is told of a beggar by the roadside who asked for alms from Alexander the Great as he passed by. In response, Alexander threw him several gold coins. An attendant was astonished at this generosity and commented, Sir, copper coins would adequately meet the beggar's need. Why give him gold? And Alexander responded, Copper coins would suit the beggar's need, but gold coins suit Alexander's giving. The count may be in question, but the point is all the same. What God gives are not meager and miserly. God doesn't give in short supply, but rather generous and abundant. That seems to suit God's giving and the God that we read of in Scripture. And of course, with this in mind, and as we arrive at the third account, it is fair to imagine yet another big response from God. Does it get bigger than resurrection? Does it get bigger than bringing someone back to life who's dead? I don't think it does. That's over the top. And to such a display, the widow now responds in verse 24, Now I know that you are a man of God, and the word of the Lord in your mouth 
is true. You know, people in Jesus' day responded similarly. They responded in the same way uh, to Jesus for many of the same reasons. The Gospel writer John identifies Jesus as one who's full of grace and truth. We see that in chapter 1 of the Gospel. And later on he'll write Jesus' own words, being the one who is way, truth, and life. And not only responded, but also associated Jesus with Elijah. That this figure Elijah is who people in Jesus' own day looked at as kind of Jesus a type of Elijah. We see that in Luke's gospel, certainly in the way the narrative is shaped early on in that gospel. But in fact, at one point, Jesus will associate himself with Elijah's ministry in Luke chapter 4. And the response of that crowd is much like what Elijah experienced in his own day. People liked him. People really appreciated the words of the prophet until they didn't. And then they went to kill him. Jesus had that kind of treatment. But all the same, the word of the Lord in Jesus' mouth is truth. And it was validated by the actions that he took and displayed. With all the good that emerges in each of Elijah's, uh, the Elijah accounts we saw this morning, we might forget a, real, uh, a real-time lesson that stares back at us from each of these stories. And that's where I want to conclude this morning uh, here as we consider this text. There's some things that happen in real time here that make these real-life type experiences for you and me. You might hear this this morning and think, wow, Jimmy really brought out the pom-poms today and rah, rah, rah. God's going to clean up all the messes that I've got and provide me with uh, abundance upon abundance. I don't have to worry about a thing now. And you and I know that's not how life goes. We know life looks quite differently uh, for many of us and many more outside of this place. And so as we think about these stories, think about life, to remember the reality that's here in this text. Yes, God did provide for the prophet, but the wadi eventually dried up. We see that in verse 7. The jar of meal and the jug of oil certainly provided provisions to an entire household for some time. But eventually they stopped. They stopped providing oil and they stopped providing what could be used for bread in verse 14. The son who's brought back to life will one day die again. He will not go on to continue living well beyond the generations. He'll die in his own generation as well. And though each gracious act is indeed a gift from God... It was never intended to be permanent. And that's always the challenge for us as people. We want everything to be permanent. Even though we know, we look around, we see generations that have gone on before, we still imagine ourselves being permanent. And that the things that we possess will always be there. And they'll always uh, go on and on and on. Of course, all our financial people tell us past performance is no indicator of future success. (laughs) And so we're even reminded by them that the jug runs out, that time runs out. But we know this already, even though we imagine it's not so. We as people of God, we know that it's not permanent. Why else would we pray week after week, give us this day our daily bread? Why would we pray that? And we come to realize what Sarah Koenig observes is this, the impermanence of God's provisions does not negate their power and goodness, but are part of the difficult and joyful life of trusting God again and again and again. Isn't that the Christian life? Isn't that what faith is? It's trusting God in each moment, 
day after day, week after week. It's not a solution that's permanent in the sense of our lives having a full bank account and a real nice ride, a nice place to live, the weeds never grow, the lawn's always mowed by itself. But rather, it's a trusting God again and again and again, no matter what might come. As pilgrims on journey to that celestial city, our lives of simple trust and obedient service take comfort in the provisions of the day, seen in these strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. Don't we love that song? And that strength and that hope is realized in Jesus Christ. That when the perils of life come, and they do come, and they will come, and perhaps for you they have come. When we are hiding and afraid, how much more it's good to know that we have the one who calls himself out to us and proves himself to be the good shepherd. When the jug runs out, how good it is to know that we have one who is the bread of life. And when our health runs out and our life comes to an end, how good it is to know the one who is resurrection and life. May we take comfort in the one who gives us all that we need each day. May we trust in him. In this generation, all generations. 